What I'd love to do is to talk a bit about your long list and if there are any honourable mentions of pieces that you... The whole of the Lord of the Rings soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay. Tell us about that. Oh, I saw it when I was 17 and I was gobsmacked by how good it was. Mm. Um, it even made me like Enya briefly, which has never happened before or since. And it is, it's Wagnerian. It's leitmotif. You have beautiful use of instruments like the Norwegian violin for Edoras. And you have these moments where the music tells you about the inner state of the character. So you have Frodo, for example, um, at Amon Hen. He's got the ring in his hand and he's wondering if he can go on and then you hear the music from the Shire and it's almost like you were aware that he'd thought about the Shire and then he steps out into the boat and crosses the water. It's very well done. It's so perfect. And it's also musical that's just wonderful to listen to at home um, on a run mm. as well. It makes me very happy. People often ask me, like, what do you listen to on a run? And I, I say, well, actually, there's quite a lot of Lord of the Rings on there and the complete recordings versions where you've got tracks that go on for 10, 11 minutes. And for me, I'm like, yeah, no, I want to listen to that bit where Osgiliath gets invaded and because it goes on for 10 minutes and it's really driving music and it just keeps me going. Have you seen it, any of the music live? I've seen the music live in Sydney Opera House conducted by Harold Shaw. But this is even, this. you think this is geeky. Um, I did my gap year in New Zealand, mostly inspired by the Lord of the Rings films, because I thought, I want to see that landscape. Yeah. And this was in 2004, before it was really geek in tourism, and there's a million more people living there now. Yeah. Um, I was last there in 2017. And it's just this these pure landscapes if you go to austria which is also beautiful everywhere you look you're going to see a skiing resort or a lift or something but really there's parts of new zealand where the only evidence that humans have been there is the path you're walking on wow and everything else is untouched but of course i went to new zealand wanting to find middle earth and what i discovered was that new zealand is perfectly beautiful on its own and it doesn't really matter which mountain you look at it's all wonderful and then I flew to Australia and discovered that Howard Shaw was conducting The Lord of the Rings and I was on a tour and I think I was supposed to be in Brisbane but I just booked a flight back to Sydney and went to, to watch him conduct live because, come on, it's a once in a lifetime show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm incredibly jealous of that. You have no idea. It was such a big orchestra as well. Oh, that's amazing. But what would you want to be in that orchestra? Are we, are we jealous of the percussionists again? I think I want to be a French horn. Oh, that is a question. Oh, you've stumped me. There's, oh. Everything. You just all Everything. There are so many moments that I'm like, oh, that is just divine. So the bit that gets me all the time is the tin whistle solo in Return of the King when they're going up the mountain. Yes. Um, that track for me is just, oh, there's just something about it that I just can't get enough of. Uh, I'd love to be playing that, but, I'd, you know, my experience of playing the flute would definitely mean i am not qualified for that uh but there's just some of the string writing like lower string stuff so much of the brass and there's that there's that beautiful solo horn moment in during the council of elrond in fellowship of the ring where you hear the gondor theme for the first time or one of the first times and it's just this really simple statement of it 
and you don't really hear it again like full whack until like two two films later there's so many little moments like that which i'm like oh that's just but also give me some of the hardcore action music and the Isengard 5-4 percussion stuff that uh, just brilliant the bit i love the most is when they're in moria and gandalf says can i risk a little more light and the orchestra sort of swells and then you get this French horn. Oh, great. Okay. Lord of the Rings, big tick. Uh, any other honourable mentions? A lot of film soundtracks. Yeah. Well, too many, so let's leave it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've put the whole of Lord of the Rings in there, so, you know. That's I was quite... like, oh, Ravel, piano concerto, and G, second movement. No, let's let go. Okay. But there's nothing significant about it except we used to get drunk and listen to it at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> that is very significant. Some of the, the most significant moments of my life. <laughs> <laughs> um and that's what i miss about now when like when you can't go to the pub after a choir rehearsal and have those impromptu nights where you end up going back to your house with a few people and you end up putting on music and just geeking out over this random piece of music oh yeah i love it yeah we would go a typical evening in cambridge i'd go to even song at john's we'd probably go to the pub and then it was you know, I'm old enough that we had to leave the pub at 11 o'clock, that tells my age. <laughs> and we would inevitably end up in the rooms of the organ scholar because it was the biggest rooms and because he didn't have neighbours who he could disturb, listening to music. And then he never had enough glasses, so we would always be drinking out of tea mugs. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have enough chairs either, so he'd be sitting on the floor with a tea mug full of whatever they had. Oh, brilliant. Listening to particularly, um, it was always Ravel piano concerto in G middle movement or the Fischer Dieskau recordings of Ich Grolle nicht. Oh, amazing. So you're not just a singer, you are also a composer. Yeah. Did you do a lot of composing growing up? I did. It's actually through Nottingham Cathedral. My parents sometimes took me to the folk mass or I had to be the older server there. And I didn't like the creed they sang because I didn't feel it connected to the words. I was at the time seven or eight years old and I wrote my own version, which I thought fitted the words better and presented it to the bishop who was distinctly not amused. Okay. Uh, but I think what it was is in the choir music scene and specifically church music, it's not unusual for a director of music to write something for a specific occasion. Yeah. So this was my first taste of composers having their works performed and also composers being people I knew. Yeah. They're not this this mythological figure like Mozart or How, Howard Shaw, but actually somebody I knew and worked with. And, yeah, it bumbled along. And I noticed I always got good marks in it, but I never really took it that seriously. And my ex-boyfriend is a choir conductor, and he heard some of the stuff I was doing and said, why don't you write something for my choir? And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll try that. And then I ended up writing a lot for his choir and a lot for myself, which wasn't performed. 
and at the time I was doing my undergraduate degree in singing so after Cambridge moving to the Netherlands and I thought oh I would like to do composing more and if I do a master's in composing in the Dutch system I have would have to choose an instrument so I chose singing as my instrument and I had exactly the same one-to-one time as singers get with singing teachers um, and an exam in singing but as my second study but if I'd chosen to do a master's in singing there would be no way I could have done composing as a second study so I thought just two for the price of one and graduated as a composer. Very clever. Amazing. And in terms of your composing, is that, uh, do you find that's primarily vocal choral music? Yes, it is primarily vocal choral music. I've actually written two musicals and I've written some pieces, for example, for voice and clarinet. I'm not so drawn to writing for orchestras simply because I haven't spent many hours in orchestras. So yeah. I don't feel technically able to. And when people say, oh, don't be ridiculous, you you know, you can learn, you can learn, I think, well, yes, but then I'm having to invest my time in learning something when there are people my age who are far ahead of me. But when I could also stick to what I'm good at and, quite frankly, what I like. Which... Yeah. As a conductor, when I'm looking at pieces of music for choirs, you can quite easily see which pieces have been written by singers and by those people who've worked or experienced choirs and because they know what works. It's not going to take ridiculous amounts of rehearsal time to get the effect that you sort of want to achieve um, exactly and that that's quite a key thing because i noticed this with um, hans's choir there are some piece some composers who for example sound like john rutter so for, for the congregation they're hearing something nice accessible a little bit like foray at least that's how i hear rutter um but there are some other composers who i won't name who sound very like rutter but the choir have to present hours to learn the piece and then you think if you're going to put in that many hours you might as well do something which the public will recognize as being impressive and hard work yeah and it it is one of my bugbears because I'm trying to diversify the music list of pieces that we do and and there are there are pieces that you're always going to want to sing but you sort of think well actually we've we've done this setting up Osaka Convivium so many times let's see if there are any others by contemporary composers and you sort of you discover things and you just you want to go back and talk to those composers and just say could you could you redo this piece and <laughs> can you just bear in mind that we've only got one rehearsal to do this uh, and it's lovely that you've set this piece for SATB and it's SATB most of the way through but on page seven is it really necessary for the sopranos to split into four and the basses to split into four because we don't really have that many <laughs> we don't have the capability to do that and it's really misleading when you just when you say it's SATB and you put that in and you can't really get beyond that section do you find it difficult to introduce new music in your church because that can be a challenge uh do you mean like in terms of convincing the choir to sing it or any sort of backlash from the congregation or all of the above choir all of the above um, <laughs> uh, no because I think this is this is what I'm about and I think it's since I've started because I've I'm a composer and I've done what I hate uh, and I've made choirs sing my music for me it's always been about introducing new music and making sure that you're not just doing the same old thing so in Nottingham I was without even like introducing new sort of choral pieces I was doing things like 
we've been singing the same sort of set of responsorial psalms, so I'm just going to change things up slightly. But also, we were singing Credo 3 all of the time. Which I love, which is sort of like a proper anthem. And when you have like alumni come back and singing, there's that sense of, oh yeah, we're singing Credo 3, this is great. This reminds me of singing this every Sunday when I was a student. But I would introduce, so I introduced things like Credo 1 during Lent because I thought, actually, let's make it, let's just do something slightly different because Credo 3 is so uplifting and joyful and actually I think we might need something a little bit penitential. And there was a massive backlash uh, from the congregation. There were people coming up to me after Mass, before Mass the next Sunday, just saying, What's, what was wrong with Credo 3? And it's like, there's nothing wrong with Credo 3, but I just I feel as if this would be quite a nice change. And I was just quite determined that we'd just break the cycle a bit. I was quite naive, I think, back in the day. Uh, but I just kept going with it. I thought, actually, I, I feel as if in a couple of years, people will get this, get why I'm doing it. And I did have some of the people who look, would come up to me and complain in like the early days, like five years ago, who would come up to me and actually say, you know, I do like that Credo one. And it, it does work well for, for Lent or, or, or for Advent. It's a really nice idea. Definitely Westminster does it. I feel as if some other places like Liverpool do it as well. But it's just, it's one of those things where you think, actually, let's just change that up slightly. And uh, and there were more things like that, like fundamental, crucial things to the Mass that I thought we should probably do a bit more things like that instead of singing. If we're going to sing a plain song Mass setting, let's sing, let's not just resort to De Angelis because everyone knows it. Let's explore all of the other ones because there are so many. And lockdown and all the restrictions that we've got at the moment has been a really good excuse because I've been able to say, well, the congregation aren't allowed to sing, so I'm going to sing something that you might not know to sort of discourage you from singing, but I'm going to make sure that we program something that you do know and that you're not going to sing along to, but you're just going to enjoy listening to because it's what we were talking about earlier, that just familiarity. And I think we all sort of need to cling on to some sort of sense of familiar and constant when the world is really matters in a church but I I mean what we were saying about remembrance but I think there's familiarity at for example funerals but there's but if it's the same thing every week yeah yeah you know and I'm just marking Lent by doing something different I think it's lovely and it it refreshes the words completely and and that's that was really what was really interesting about the choir because we I remember doing a rehearsal and because we we never rehearsed Credo Three because you just knew it or you get to know it after a couple of weeks. But I said we I remember having a rehearsal on a Friday and said we're going to just rehearse Credo One because it is different and the syllables fall on different accents and it was very interesting then going back to Credo Three, hearing how the choir sang Credo Three, having sung Credo One for five weeks because suddenly you hear different words slightly differently because you've been singing them slightly differently for five weeks. Uh, it was fascinating. But in terms of like choral music, that's for me, that's always been a, a really exciting thing to try and constantly inject new energy into because there's so much out there. But you're always trying to balance introducing new things, but new things that are appropriate to the Sunday and the liturgy and what the readings are and the theme for that Sunday. And there's, there are just sometimes where you think, well, actually, the talus of Sacrum Convivium is 
the right text, the right mood, the right sort of setting that we need for this particular day. And actually no one's, no one's come up with a, a different setting that has got a similar sort of atmosphere or has got a different atmosphere that's suitable for that time. So there are certain pieces that I think are always going to be around. But one of the things I'd love to do is actually have a, a commissioning project where I actually am quite specific about I want people to write an SATB, no divisi. <laughs> I want to like specific settings of these pieces. They need to be like no longer than four minutes or if they are, it needs to be uh, suitable so that we can sing it at communion because actually we can't have a six minute long piece at the offertory and things like that. And it needs to be, if it's for a specific Sunday, it needs to be something you can do in one or two rehearsals because I, I'm doing a project at the moment setting the texts of the Gregorian introits. Oh, really? Okay. And I know that in it must whatever I write must not be longer than the Gregorian chant. Yeah. And it must also not be significantly more complex. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the choirs that sing chant generally know what they're doing. So, of course, it doesn't take so much rehearsal. But if you're writing a piece to be sung on one Sunday per year, then you know that a choir is not going to put in hours for it. Yeah. If you're writing a piece that can be sung all year round, or maybe for a special Sunday like Easter, then you know what well, they might put in a bit more effort. Yeah. Although in saying that, so it, it's, it's always interesting at Easter and planning <laughs> Easter and Holy Week music. For the Catholic Church, Holy Week is so huge. And there's huge, and in normal times, there's usually such a lot of music. And I'm always really conscious, like when I get into Lent, I'm thinking, Alex, don't forget that you've got to rehearse Easter Sunday and the Easter visual music, as well as all of this other stuff, like Good Friday, which is offers up a whole wealth of opportunities for really amazing music but you get to the point where actually you're like we're running out of rehearsal time and actually we just need for easter sunday because everyone is so tired after working so hard in the previous sort of seven days we we might just need something that doesn't really require that much rehearsal time is quite straightforward which is annoying because this is the high point of so it's the same with midnight mass and christmas morning yeah um, exactly yeah exactly i mean you know midnight mass especially Sometimes you have the midnight mass that actually finishes at midnight, which is quite nice. But there, I will say, remember midnight masses which started at midnight. Yeah. And then you've got to get up and go and sing again in the morning, even if your voice is working, your brain probably isn't. Exactly, and if I've always, <laughs> I've always found that I I get in from midnight mass, and the midnight masses that I've done have always, apart from last year, which started at ten because of COVID. They've always started at half 11 or quarter to 12 or something like that. So you're not getting out until maybe even half one um, uh, or you're not leaving the building until half one. And you just think, OK, right, I'm just going to drive home, you drive home. Your head's buzzing because you've just done like a really exciting service and it's gone really well or whatever. Um, so then you end up still awake at like 3 a.m. Think I've got I need to go to sleep because I've got to do. Um, you've got I'm, to steer the whole ship yeah um, also you know you know that your voice might not be working if you if you don't sleep yeah remember that the christmas run as well and that uh and then you go i'd go home and then we'd have this sort of family there and i, I was supposed to be happy and excited about my presence and excited about dinner i just wanted to go back to bed um, yeah exactly and i so in 
in Nottingham, I used to host uh, a bit of a, <laughs> a bit of a party. I'd just basically say to people on Easter Sunday, "You're all welcome to come back to mine, and uh, I've got food. We might, if the weather's good, we might have had a barbecue. Come and help yourself." And without fail, I would be I would have fallen asleep at like two p.m. Um, <laughs> terrible host but I'd, I'd have a good nap and then wake up and have a second wind but yeah it was always it would always just get me at that time and I think I just need a just need a bit of a, a nap because this is it's all just gotten too much but Easter especially with um I mean Palm Sunday already it, it started and then Monday Thursday Good Friday vigil yeah. morning mass it's it's really a marathon yeah yeah it is but I've always when I'm trying to always trying to persuade singers to you know stay and see the whole thing through I remember a lot of like students would would stay for Good Friday but not stay for the Easter Vigil or Easter Sunday I just think you know it's like it's like watching the Lord of the Rings and not watching Return of the King you know Um, (laughs) but you know the Monday Thursday through the Easter Vigil is one service really you need to experience the whole thing I used Holy Week as a bit of an excuse to be like, okay, so for Monday, Thursday, we'd usually sing the Ubi Caritas by Duraflay, which I love, or we might do the Yellow version, which is slightly different, but it's got a similar sort of nice vibe. Yeah, and it's so effective on Monday, Thursday. But there's an arrangement by uh, a setting of the plain chant by Roxana Panofnik, which is for two sopranos. And I looked at it and I thought, well, we because of the way the schedule was working we couldn't have two sopranos for that that service but i thought we'd actually we've got a really good mezzo and we've got a tenor and actually i might be able to be quite crafty about how this is done because it's it's basically a setting of the chant in latin uh and then halfway through that goes on and the second part sings a translation the the english translation of the, the latin and there's a bit more ornamentation that goes on. And I thought this could work. And we, we did it with a mezzo and a tenor. And we got the tenor singing one of the parts an octave lower. And it was it worked. It wasn't quite probably what Roxana Panofnik wanted. But it was so effective at that point. Um, and it was quite poignant as well because it's COVID and we're not able to do what we normally do. But it really worked. And I remember thinking at the end, we're going to do this again like this isn't just (laughs) just for this year this is a piece that we're going to dig out and uh do quite a bit it's wonderful when you find pieces like that which work and are you know helping the greater cause of trying to readdress the balance of female composers in a in a choir library and also opening people's minds because covid has disrupted a lot already so making use of this situation to, to say well we don't have enough people we don't have enough time to rehearse the, the usual repertoire so i found you a nice alternative yeah it might open people up more to new stuff yeah exactly and i think that's been quite so for this last term we've had just solo cantors for sunday mass and it's been quite nice talking to them about what they might sing and by and large they've always sung a very familiar popular classical sacred piece of music during communion as their sort of like showpiece but we've been doing this mass setting by uh dorothy howell and it's just this really really simple mass setting for unison voices i was like this is a revelation this works really well and and because we've done that like throughout lent people now know it and it's familiar and they 
they like it and you just think oh that's 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 quite good we'll we'll come back to that what the disadvantage is with this inclusivity of female composers i want to be included because they like my music i don't want to be included because i'm a woman but equally beggars can't be choosers and i think there's going to have to be this conscious inclusivity before people can be gender blind well this is it and i can't tell you the amount of directors of music who've said i just program good music i was like yeah that's that's very admirable we all want to program good music but for me as an individual just on the personal level i have just been exposed to all of this music that is by white men generally so i already have a lot of that in my in my back catalog of pieces that are my go-to what i don't have is all of this music by female composers that i just I don't, I'm not aware that it exists or where it is. So I now spend so much time planning music lists because I'm going out of my way to not just put something down, but go, actually, I'm just going to see, like on this list that I've got of various composers, like, have they, has anyone set this text? And like, can we include that? Does that work for this particular Sunday? So that actually the the norm for the people who are, I always think about the choral scholars and I think if those choral scholars go off and conduct, start conducting their own choirs, maybe there'll be a piece that we did, you know, quite regularly that was a, a very unknown piece of music, but they got to know really well that maybe they can go off and share that with some other choirs that they sing with or that they conduct. And one piece which they might want to share is Emma's setting of the text, I Sing of a Maiden. And before we get back to the conversation, here's a little snippet. So I did my master's in composition, but I chose church music. And one of the reasons I chose that was because when you write for a church, if you want to be successful, you have to consider the liturgy. You have to consider the congregation. You can't challenge them too much musically. But you also have to consider the choir who may be amateur. But if they're a professional church choir, then they're probably going to sight read through it once. Mm. So you have to make the music user friendly yeah. and also congregation friendly and that way I learned a much more technical approach to composing than I think in in the composition department in the Hague it can go quite wacky 
they had a composition room where the singer was held upside down over a bucket of water and had to burst balloons in the bucket, which was amazing. I have never forgotten it. Yeah. But I don't know if this person ever learned how to write a four-part fugue. And doing this, doing composition and saying, I want to study composition, but I want to do it through the church music department, but have access to the same teachers and resources as the composition department. And then the composition department fully respected the criteria for composing church music. And I ended up having quite a technical training, which really matters because, I mean, there's a play by Tom Stoppard where there's a playwright and his partner asks him to help a man who I think is in prison, but a man who has a, is a bit of a loser. And because, oh, he's trying to write a play. And this, this man says to his wife, yes, but anybody can write a play, but you've got to write a play that works. And he said, it's the same with a cricket bat. Anybody can pick up a piece of wood, but to to steam and temper and bend this piece of wood that it has the springiness in it to hit a cricket ball correctly, that's the art form. Uh. And it, I guess I tend to explain it more like architecture, that anybody can draw a house, but to draw a house that somebody can build requires a lot of technique and background knowledge, and that's kind of composing. And especially in church music, it's so important that what you write works and low input high results yeah and i think about these people like people like bark and palestrina and verge like all of these people were choir directors in their own right they worked for the church and knew about the sort of practicalities of what was needed what I really love about the conversation that we've had is that it's so clear that you, you've got the experience with the Catholic liturgy firsthand. So you get it. And when you're writing stuff, that's already sort of embedded in your work. Is there something about actually if we had more women in directors of music roles who also did composition and stuff? Sorry, I'm sort of... No, but I think you're right because it's not... It, that's also the problem because it's not as simple as let's find and program more female composers. It's also giving the female composers the chance to be in the church music world, because until recently, most church choirs were only boys. Most directors of music were men. Yeah. So the best you could hope for, perhaps, would be to have a son who sang in a choir. Yeah, so it was a completely closed-off world, wasn't it? Yeah. And that does seem to be changing. I mean, it's, it's really nice to look at places like Arundel Cathedral and Coventry and places like that where there are now women in those roles and there are people like Anna Lapwood and oh what's her name also in Cambridge uh Sarah McDonald that's the one oh she's my few teacher she's wonderful yeah she I mean they're both doing I think they're doing really great work in trying to fly the flag of just diversifying music lists and and being quite vocal about it on social media and and that's been great and you just hope that actually some other people you know as each year goes on we might get one more person who might start doing that and slowly but surely it could be quite a different in 10 years time you sort of think this could be really could be really exciting it will take time but it's more it's not as simple as um programming female composers it's also giving female composers the the chance to be immersed in that world because you've got to understand choirs and voices you've got to understand liturgy and you've really got to respect the ability of your singers and it's I think the only area of composition that is 
where you are either writing for amateurs or for people who will be sight reading. Yeah. I mean, other, other, it's more like the sort of educational training compositions in a way. It's, it's more the education department than the contemporary music department. Yeah, that's a really good point. And just to continue talking a bit about you as a composer. So you've had some pieces published? Yes. Um, I have a small publisher called Edition HH who specialise in um, early music and little-known music by known composers. So I've also helped them edit some Haydn songs, which were not previously published. And they, the, their other speciality is contemporary composers. And I'm currently the only choral music composer with them. Oh, and it's really nice. Yeah, it's so weird seeing your own music. Yeah, in a professional binding, seeing your name on it is quite surreal. What was that piece that we did in Nottingham? I think, I think you did Olux Beata Trinita. That's exactly the one. Yeah, uh, it's one of those pieces where you think there's something interesting going on, sort of uh, compositionally, but it's also incredibly effective and really works. So thank you for that because those sort of pieces are quite hard to come by. trying at the moment to write in a much more simple way simply because I know the effort a choir has to put into a new composition especially where there's no recording um, so they've really got to study the notes but also because I know for myself from years of singing in choirs the easier a piece is the more passion you can put into it the more interpretation you can give it and if you're still struggling with notes and rhythms then you're not going to interpret it beautifully so yeah, exactly. And that lack of rehearsal time that choirs always seem to have, particularly in a sort of church or cathedral setting where there's always so much music to get through, having those pieces that... Well, it's so important as well, because quite often you're writing a piece for one Sunday in the year or one season of the year. So you can't, you can't necessarily expect people to put in that much time. Yeah. Thank you very much. That was most enjoyable. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and have you on. Thank you, Alex. Lovely to catch up. And thank you to you for listening. I'll be back with another Patapod very soon. In the meantime, please do rate and review and keep spreading the word about the podcast to anyone who will listen. Uh, instead of playing us out with the usual jingle, I'm going to give the final say to Emma with a snippet of her piece, Marta Tenera, which will be published later this year. <laughs>